So Citizen Lab tracks governments who do bad things online. As you can imagine, the human rights watchdog likely pisses said governments off. Here at Motherboard, a pillar of cybersecurity reporting, we're here for it. But there are those who aren't. Recently, a private spy service of some kind was hired to go after Citizen Lab. But Citizen Lab got them back, and oh so spectacularly. I'm about to speak to John Scott Railton, a senior researcher at Citizen Lab who helped entrap in a sting operation a private spy trying something on the lab. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So, John, just to start this off, can you tell me what is Citizen Lab? So Citizen Lab is a research group based at the Monk School at the University of Toronto and For more than a decade, we've focused on trying to understand the different kinds of digital threats faced by civil society. So that means hacking attacks against journalists or attempts to limit the the freedom of speech online. And our interest uh, these days is heavily focused on uh, the growth and proliferation of tools for hacking and how they get abused to target people like human rights defenders and dissidents and others. And how many enemies do you have? Well, I think we also have a lot of friends, but uh, certainly this case suggests that uh, we've done something right uh, and that uh, someone doesn't like what we're doing. Yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, this this story, I know there's been a lot of talk that it's been connected to some of the work that you did identifying NSO group and its connection to Saudi Arabia. Do you want to kind of take me through that? Sure. So we've been working on this uh, company for a while. It first showed up in 2016, when Ahmed Mansour, a UAE-based human rights defender, was targeted with Pegasus spyware. Since that time, we focused on trying to understand both the sort of global proliferation of this technology, so what governments are using it, and then digging pretty deeply into specific cases of abuse. That research took us last year, and some work led by my colleague Bill Marzak, to discover that a Canadian permanent resident named Omar Abdulaziz, who is based in Quebec, was targeted with Pegasus spyware. Now, Omar is well known for being a close confidant of Jamal Khashoggi, who is, of course, uh, brutally murdered in the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, last year. Yeah, and so he's been connected to him, which is obviously something that was extremely high profile. And we know that Saudi intelligence is pretty ruthless in how they've been going after this particular person and anyone connected with them. So I think part of the big concern here, and certainly the concern that Omar has had, is that he was working very closely with Jamal and was doing things that the uh, Saudi government uh, really didn't seem to like. And uh, you know, his concern, of course, is that maybe some of his uh, communications with Jamal were intercepted because his phone had been hacked uh, and that 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 may have been part of the dossier compiled against Jamal. Now, how does this relate to a meeting that happened in Toronto? So Citizen Lab, of course, continued its research and investigations after that case. But towards the end of last year, my colleague Bahar uh, received an email or a LinkedIn message and someone someone was trying to get in touch. 
And this person who represented himself as Gary Bowman and said that he was a South African working for a Madrid-based financial technology startup, uh, was interested in talking to my colleague Bahar about um, financial solutions for refugees. And of course, financial things are a big problem for refugees. Just getting banking or a credit card can be really hard. And this is something which Bahar knows well because Bahar is himself a refugee from the conflict in Syria as well as being a brilliant employee of Citizen Lab. So the conversation moves from LinkedIn to email and pretty soon Gary is setting up an opportunity to meet at the swanky Shangri-La Hotel in Toronto at uh, the end of last year in December. So Bahar goes to this meeting. And instead of being a conversation about financial technology solutions for refugees, it's kind of a conversation about Bahar, who he is, who his parents are, what his political beliefs are, does he pray, does he hate Israel? And then it becomes a conversation about Citizen Lab's work and some pretty sensitive things involving our work. What role are we playing in some lawsuits against NSO Group and kind of what else are we working on? What else do we know? And when he's not asking that, the questions seem to be trying to goad Bihar into suggesting that Citizen Lab's work on NSO Group and the abuses of the spyware uh, might be motivated by anti-Semitism. Now, I should point out, Citizen Lab has lots of projects. We work on the censorship of information. We work on hacking groups around the world. And we work on a whole handful of different companies that make commercial spyware. But this gentleman representing himself as Gary Bowman, was only interested in one company, NSO Group. Which is kind of a bit of a giveaway. I mean, that's also quite sloppy to ask some of those questions that might lead you to think a certain way about who the asker is. Unless you think that uh, what this sort of Gary Bowman figure is trying to do is actually about four or five things at the same time. So he's trying to get Bahar to maybe say something that could be used against Bahar. And he's trying to get whatever juice he can on the Citizen Lab. And he's been tasked with getting very specific questions answered. And he's looking for some kind of potentially compromising information on Bihar. That's a lot to do in one conversation. And to my mind, it's a little bit of a conversational smash and grab. So it, it is absolutely clumsy. But I think that um, my observation is that it's probably, these guys probably do this a lot. And uh, it may be the case that even if during the course of the conversation, the person who they're targeting becomes a little bit suspicious, they can just evaporate when the conversation disappears. Now, Bahar notices he's being recorded, does he not? Bahar believed that he was being recorded based on the way that this Bowman character had sort of placed a phone on the table and pointed it microphone business end uh, towards Bahar. Now, as soon as that conversation was over, Bahar called me and said, look, I think something really uh, strange has happened here and uh, we should really uh, take a look at this. So we do. And my colleagues and I determine really within a few minutes of digging into this Gary Bowman identity that this looks like some kind of an elaborate fake. And we conclude, okay, it looks like somebody is targeting us under false pretenses. Uh, not too long after that, I get in touch with uh, Raphael Satter of the Associated Press. And Raphael, using the Associated Press's resources, confirms that the addresses used by uh, this fake company, Flame Tech, don't exist. And then furthermore, Flametech isn't registered as a company anywhere. Moving from there, we get ready to do some kind of a publication. And then, like a perfectly timed moment, I get an email from somebody who represents himself as Michel Lambert. And Michel wants to talk to me about kites. About what? 
Well, so when I started doing doctoral work uh, a little while ago, I was putting robotic cameras on kites and flying them over slums in West Africa to look at flooding. I was trying to track how urban flooding was leading to political conflict and violence in Senegal. And this is something that is uh, findable uh, on the bottom of my personal webpage. And Mr. Lambert represented himself as an investor who was interested in using this admittedly janky technology uh, to try to do a really big money, uh, large scale agriculture and infrastructure project in Africa. Now I should point out that the message that I got from Lombert felt a little bit like Mad Libs with uh, buzzwords and jargon pulled from my own website and writing. So as soon as I got this email, I thought, great, we're in business. It looks like I'm being targeted again. Let's see how long we can play this one out and maybe turn this into something that we can reverse on these guys. And did you ever reverse it? Well, boy, did we ever. So the conversation progressed from that initial email, which of course I responded to immediately, sounding excited, to a series of email exchanges where I portray a version of myself that I, I felt might you know, sort of confirm Lambert's theory of me, which is an excited and geeky graduate student who would just love to talk about this uh, you know, goofy kite methodology. So, uh, you know... I'm sending this guy messages with links to papers and I'm talking about sort of the development of the technology in the field. And when I'm not doing that, I'm saying how exciting and relevant it is. So Lambert proposes a phone call. And uh, I decide, okay, well, I'm not going to give this guy uh, any real information about me, but I am going to give him a burner number. And more than that, I'm going to create an elaborate pretext uh, for us to have a meeting in New York. So uh, I obtain a burner phone and then uh, create a bunch of Reddit posts and Craigslist posts, submit myself to a bunch of 411 directory services and just about every sort of privacy invasive thing you could think of uh, and create the legend that I'm in New York apartment hunting, which also gives me uh, a reason to tell Mr. Lambert that uh, I'm a little bit cash poor at the moment, which I think you know, would, would pique his interest. <laughs> so you're almost like, you're, you're honeypotting this guy <laughs> in some ways. Well, you know, I really want him to come to a meeting with me. And so uh, the challenge there is try to draw him into that conversation without seeming uh, too eager to meet him, but, uh, you know, to, to play into his, his stereotype about uh, what, I, what I think he thinks I'm all about. I, I think at some point he's clearly not making the calculation that you work for Citizen Lab, which does some very fairly, not covert, but you deal with the covert world. And I know you, you all to be very knowledgeable about that space of intelligence that you're being like, he thinks you're completely naive to this. Well, he may have just thought that, you know, if he talked to me about kites, I wouldn't connect it to my primary employment. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we get to this phone call and there I am sitting waiting for the phone to ring and the phone doesn't ring. It's supposed to be a WhatsApp call, nothing doing. So I sit there heart pounding and think to myself, shoot. He's on to me. I've done something. I've been too eager. And it looks like this isn't going to work. So eventually I get an email from him. You know, dear John, I'm uh, somewhere hard to reach in Africa. And it seems like this, uh, you know, this phone call will have to be postponed till tomorrow. No problem, I say. Boy, it makes me nostalgic for being back in Africa when it was hard to make phone calls. So the next day, there I am sitting in a hotel again. And this time, Lambert does call. And right off the bat, I'm kind of taken aback because up until that point, I'd been having a word-perfect English conversation 
with a person on email. The call, however, begins in fluent French, uh, which is a language that I speak, but uh, I don't make a huge deal about it. Um, certainly, it's not how most people would, would reach out to me. And Monsieur Lambert would like nothing more than to talk to me a little bit about kites, but preferably without a lot of specificity, which is good because I haven't thought a lot about kites in the past decade either. Uh, so we're sort of both playing along to this conversation. And uh, pretty soon, Lambert is suggesting that it'd be really great if we meet next week in New York because he's going to happen to be in town on business. And why don't we mix uh, work with pleasure and uh, have a nice meal? Great, I say, let's make it happen. So Lambert then follows up, suggesting uh, a date and a time and introducing an alias identity, Thomas Mbake, which is as uh, fake as Lambert, uh, who's going to tell me the location once that's settled. Now, it's my view that uh, that's a ruse in order to try to preserve a little bit of operational control. They're not going to tell me the location until fairly late in the game, making it hard for me to sort of set a trap for them. And who knows, maybe they've used that location before, whatever. So I'm in the meantime, of course, communicating with the Associated Press and uh, with Raphael Satter. And Raphael and I uh, devised this plan, which is we're going to run this as a sting. And so Raphael is going to bring some uh, AP uh, videography and uh, sports photography talent to bear. Uh, And uh, I'll have the conversation. And then at a signal from me, we settle on, uh, he will show up, uh, cameras rolling, and ask Mr. Lambert some pointed questions. So uh, waiting with bated breath, for this guy to uh, respond. Finally, the day before, very exciting, this Thomas Mbake uh, alias tells me, okay, the location is going to be the Clement restaurant at the swanky five-star Peninsula Hotel. Great. Time to call Raphael and get him to get himself uh, and his people a reservation at the same hotel, at the same restaurant. So fast forward to the day of the meeting. We're at Thursday of last week. And uh, I'd spent the night before uh, burning the midnight oil trying to uh, fit a really small camera into a necktie. And uh, I didn't really have a lot of materials available, so I was sort of using like nail scissors and I had uh, deconstructed a a hotel slipper, which I was using to kind of uh, hold the material. And uh, it it was kind of a a production. It all felt pretty haphazard. So I arrive at the restaurant and uh, the person at the front uh, asks me, you know, if I've got a reservation, I say, well, I'm looking for this guy, Mr. Lambert. Aha, he says, come back with me. So back to the restaurant, we go to the very back. And there at a table behind a pillar is uh, a gentleman who looks sort of like his picture on LinkedIn. And before I know it, he's getting up and heartily greeting me in French and uh, conveying me to another table. Uh, this one with my back to the restaurant, by a nice window, good lighting. And within about four minutes of the conversation beginning, Lambert is saying sort of offensive, racist French things, and I think trying to get me to laugh along with him. And I'm sort of thinking to myself, gosh, this guy's pretty bold, right? We're, you know, we're, we're barely started and he's already trying to get me to do this stuff. Uh, but then in my head, I think, well, you know, he may have experience that, you know, sometimes people get up and leave. So he's got to try to get something in early, right? Yeah. Uh, at least do it, you know, sort of mini- a minimum viable product for a, uh, for a, uh, a professional, albeit somewhat bumbling spook. Uh, and as we're having this conversation, which ranges from him talking about having cigars with the uh, president of Africa to uh, his daughter, who's my age, although on the phone call he had told me it was his son who is my age, um, 
I realized that there's a person who's sat at a nearby table and who's um, busy uh, holding his cell phone up in such a way that he would be recording me. So I think, okay, you know, I think I get a sense of uh, the layout and process that they're working here. Also, meanwhile, but, but, you're wearing a button camera. Well, I'm wearing a couple of things. And uh, by the way, if your program needs like a lightly used body mic with a little bit of chest hair on it, um, let me know. <laughs> I've actually, I've, I've worn a button camera before. It's very, you're kind of like, oh God, is this working? So um, one of the challenges uh, in the conversation was to try to let it play out in a way that felt natural. When of course, you know, your mind is anything else but relaxed. So I was very focused during this conversation on making sure uh, to appear to be the person who is as enthusiastic uh, as I, you know, I think he, as I think he thinks I am. So the conversation ranges, and for the first hour, it's mostly in French, and we're mostly talking about Africa and kites and this and that. And I get the sense that you know the guy is kind of enjoying portraying himself as a high roller who smokes cigars and needs Mobutu Sesiseko and Idi Amin and everything else that he says. What? And yeah, so, so he told me that he met, all these, he met all these African leaders. Uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely, he was playing at full throttle. Uh, and then at about an hour in, the conversational pivot that I've been waiting for happens. And uh, to my great pleasure, he moves us to English, uh, which of course is going to be good for his transcription and good for mine. And begins asking me questions about NSO Group and makes some kind of hard pivots uh, from some pretty intense and disturbing conversational topics like a novel about um, you know, a Muslim and a Jewish boy who grew up together in France and then uh, as adults, the Muslim kills his Jewish boyhood friend and uh, by the way, um, is Citizen Lab and uh, you know, some of the investigations in Mexico that we've done are motivated by the same kind of anti-Semitism. But there are some counterfeit features about this guy, although I assume that the briefcase is, is legit Mont Blanc and one of them is this pen that he's got. So, you know, he's got this sort of sheaf of note cards that he's shifting back and forth in as he looks at me. And if you listen to the audio, you'll discover that there are some pauses. And this is what he's sort of shuffling his, his cards. And I have to kind of, you know, look at him and smile and act like it's the most normal thing in the world uh, to have a dinner, a lunch conversation with a person who's, you know, basically running off a teleprompter. But uh, at one point, it's sort of pretty clear that, you know, he, he doesn't want to like hold the pen and the note cards in his hand. Uh, while eating. So he props the note cards up against a glass uh, and then is holding this pen in his hand. And normally, you know, you hold the pen with the point on the paper. Uh, he was holding this pen with it, the, the cap of it pointed toward me. And because of the light and the angles, I could see that there was like a hole, big hole right in the top of that cap that he was pointing towards I me. Mean, my conclusion is it's either a camera in there or a microphone that he's trying to point at me. Okay, so I got to ask, at what point do you just confront him? Well, you know, we'd been playing along for an hour and an hour and a half. And uh, finally, I get this message discreetly uh, from Raphael saying, hey, look, uh, the batteries on our lavalier mics are running low. Um, can we speed things up? And I, I would have been happy to finish my creme brulee. But um, <laughs> at this point, you know, Michelle is also asking me some questions about my mom. So I decide, all right, it's time to wrap this thing up. I decide to send the signal. So I send the signal to Raphael and then uh, start distracting Michel. Raphael Satter shows up, camera in tow, and uh, is pulling up a chair and sitting down next to Michel just as Michel turns and sees him, resulting in a moment of pure surprise. Does this at all scare you? 
and some of the work that you do, knowing that someone's going to pay some ex-Israeli intelligence official or defense official to spy on you and to try to essentially destroy you? Well, the way that we read this is, look, we must be doing something right if somebody is paying all this money to send people uh, around the world to have uh, fancy meals with us and try to get us to say uh, you know, things that could prejudice um, the public view of, of our work. So we must be doing something right. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's very concerning and this kind of behavior is unsettling. What it also does though is really highlight uh, to me and to my colleagues um, the importance of continuing to pursue this work and viewing this as an encouragement to continue the work and to continue the investigation. Honestly, I can't think of a better motivator uh, than a situation like this. And you know, I, it, it, this is total inference, but you know, this is hot on the heels of some, some work that you did essentially upsetting the Saudi government and particularly what you imagine is the Saudi prince that is at the, the center of this you know, brutal murder of a journalist in, in, in 2018. The only moment during the conversation when I felt a bit of a chill was when he laughingly suggested that after lunch, we should go together to a cigar bar. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I really did not want to leave that restaurant. You know, he came in with some people. I came in with some people. And uh, wild horses weren't going to drag me uh, out there. I don't actually think that there was any concern there. Um, but uh, as you say, given the context of what was going on, um, obviously I wasn't, I wasn't going to leave. I mean, it's clear to, I mean, it's fair to say these people play for keeps this kind of establishment of intelligence. I mean, I've, I've engaged in it as a reporter as well. And there's, there's certainly this, you know, this overarching fear that you can have when they're around because, you know, these are people who are paid to do criminal things for governments. So here's the question. Are they bumblers or are they a threat? And I don't think it's an either or. I think it's I think it's a bit of both. I think that this person, Ahon, um, probably had done this sort of thing a bit too much and had become complacent. That said, I have no illusions about the complacency of his employers um, or their motivations um, to to do harm to uh, the credibility of the work that that we do. Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess you know from a another standpoint, if it is indeed the people that very widely have been inferred to have been the, the, the purchasers of these, these services that came down on, on Citizen Lab. It's sad that that's happening, and that's after the fact that there was a global outcry about a brutal murder of a journalist. Well, we don't know who hired uh, the company that hired Michelle or through what uh, you know, series of intermediaries that took place, and we really can't say... Um, who it was, whether it was a company or, or a government that did it. What I will say, though, is this. The commercial spyware industry has spent years responding to research like ours by saying, look, at the end of the day, we're ethical. And you know, although there may be some misuse, we're trying to support law enforcement and we're trying to support you know, the identification of terrorists and criminals. And I think a case like this really makes the point that the industry is kind of out of control and capable of behaving very recklessly in ways that, that don't seem to have anything to do with uh, law enforcement or catching terrorists and a lot more to do with trying to discredit uh, researchers working in the public interest. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Raphael Satter broke the story for Associated Press. So please tell me from the start, how did this happen? This one fell into my lap and I was really, really lucky. Uh, John Scott Railton at Citizen Lab gave me a ring or dropped me a line, and he said, uh, hey, something pretty odd is happening. He explained to me that one of his colleagues had been lured to a hotel in Toronto and had been quizzed in detail about his work on the NSO group. This is the Israeli spyware company. And that after the meeting, the guy was so weirded out that he spoke to John about it and, and other colleagues at Citizen Lab. And then they all went through the whole episode and they realized that this guy, the guy that they that uh, the researcher met at the hotel was not who he said he was and that his company didn't look legit and that this looked like this had been some sort of weird undercover operation. And so I said, well, all right, this sounds like a pretty cool story. Uh, let's dig into it. And so we started. And from there, I mean, you, you took details of what this individual had been saying to Citizen Lab and you kind of pieced it apart that damn, this is, not, this is not a real legit institution. Yeah, it was pretty clear that this institution was not legit. The company that this guy claimed to work for is a company called Flame Tech. And if you go to their website, although it doesn't exist anymore, but if you did go to their website, you would see the, the kind of thing that you'd see on any kind of fintech startup, you know, a, a bunch of gobbledygook about blockchain and Bitcoin and, uh, you know, fintechifying the future. And it all seems about as non-credible as any other Silicon Valley weird startup, except that uh, in this case, there didn't really seem to be anybody working for FlameTech. We, we looked at the guy's LinkedIn profile, and he had a kind of strange, moody, black and white photograph with sunglasses, the kind of thing that you'd, that you'd use if you didn't want anybody doing any kind of facial recognition on you. And we looked through the LinkedIn um, pages that were associated with the company, and John Scott Railton spotted that at least one of the guys was using a piece of clip art as his LinkedIn profile, or stock footage, rather. And, and so that already got John's suspicions up. And I went to the library, and I, I did a bit of research, and I looked up Flame Tech on the Spanish business uh, registry, and I realized, well, there is no Flame Tech in, in Madrid or anywhere else in Spain, or indeed anywhere else in the world. So this company wasn't registered. They didn't have a registered trademark. They, the company executive who claimed to live in Madrid wasn't in the Madrid phone book. So little by little, we started to confirm John's suspicion that this whole thing was just a big setup. And I guess the question you ask yourself next is, who is this guy and what is Flame Tech? At least what's behind this? And what were you thinking? Well, we were, we were batting around ideas about who was behind this. And of course... All of us were intrigued by the fact that this guy, who claimed to be called Gary Bowman, had asked questions about the NSO group. But we really couldn't prove anything. And we were actually in the middle of trying to uh, puzzle our way through this when John Scott Railton himself got an approach from a different company, 
This one, an agritech business based out of Paris called CPW Consulting. And, and I was really about to hit the button on a story to send to my editor when, when John said, hold up, I've, uh, now I've been contacted by somebody. And we looked at this company, CPW, and once again, same pattern, kind of vague website with a bunch of very vague business descriptions. And when you dig into the French business registry, you realize, well, there's, there's nothing really there. So we think, well, all right, now there's looks like there's a second company in the mix. And here's where it gets exciting because the guy wants to meet. Okay, so they agree to meet again in New York City. What do you do? I get very excited to start with. <laughs> uh, this, is, uh, this, this is a great opportunity. I mean, I was going to write a story that said that this poor guy, Bahar Abdul Razak, he was lured to this meeting. They tried to ask him leading questions about Israel. They might have recorded him. Who knows who they are? But now we've got a different kind of opportunity. We've got an opportunity to actually ask some questions directly to the undercover agent himself. Not only that, but we can do this on video. So not many people know it. You probably read AP articles or see AP photos in, in the American media or the English-speaking media. But the AP actually has a, has a big television service. And, and I thought, well, this would make for great television. So I fly to New York on short notice. I uh, join John, who's, uh, who's already in the city. And uh, we agree that because John is a little bit concerned that somebody might be tracking him, that we're not going to meet up in person ahead of time. We start working out a protocol for what we're going to do at the hotel, because by now, this operative has said, why don't you come and meet me at the Peninsula Hotel at the restaurant? We're going we're gonna to get a very nice lunch together. And John makes arrangements for uh, a couple of uninvited guests to show up midway through the lunch. So I make a reservation under an assumed name at the restaurant, and I bring along my AP television colleague who's got his camera hidden in a, in a duffel bag. And uh, we try and dress up, although we apparently didn't dress up quite well enough <laughs> for, this, uh, for this place. And we sit down to, to dinner. And, and as luck would have it, the, uh, the waiter brought us directly to the table that was uh, across from where John and this undercover operative were already seated and already deep into conversation. So now what we have to do is wait for the right moment. This is some, some straight up spy shit right here. Well, it gets even weirder, right? Because as we get into the restaurant, I have a strange feeling about one of the guys who's sitting, let's say, catty corner uh, or just over my right shoulder. He's sitting there alone and he's kind of staring into his phone. He's sort of scowling and he's just got a, 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 a teacup in front of him or maybe a coffee cup and he's not ordering anything to eat. And, he's, you know, he's there for lunch. So that's a little bit strange. And all he does is he kind of waves his phone around, sort of scowls at it, ends up having nothing except the, the, the cup of coffee, and then leaves. And we make eye contact when I sit down. So I felt like, oh, that's a little bit odd. And John and I had discussed this ahead of time. We'd said, it probably won't be just the one operative in the restaurant. If these guys are professional, they'll probably have other people around. And obviously, I'm getting a little bit paranoid. I think, like, is that the guy? Is, is, is he another spy? What about the people at the bar? You know, they're hanging around. They don't seem to be eating anything. They're, they seem to be glancing over in our direction every once in a while. Are they spies too? So I have to keep, but I have to keep my eyes on the menu and on my lunch partner because in theory, we're there to have lunch together and to, to have a nice conversation. And 
we now that we both clocked John and his and his lunch partner, we realized we probably shouldn't look over. We shouldn't stare. We don't want to give anything away. Let's just have a nice meal. And that actually proves more challenging than expected because the AP's budget doesn't stretch that far. And the stuff at the Peninsula Hotel is really expensive. So we start strategizing about how we're going to squeeze out about $70 to cover our meal. And it's a real challenge. Okay, so tell me about the confrontation because you actually go, you ask them some questions. Right. I can, I can sort of overhear the conversation that, that John and Michel are having. They're, they're having it half in French, half in English. And then at one point, we have a photographer who's loitering around downstairs. She's, she's waiting for anything to, to happen or anybody to emerge from the hotel. And she's getting a bit bored because while we are trying to enjoy about half a dozen oysters and uh, two glasses of white wine between us, she's out in the cold waiting for, pe- waiting for something to happen. Nothing's happening. So she texts me and she says, is this thing really happening? You know, maybe John realized that the guy was legit after all, and they're just having a good conversation. And that's when I can overhear over the noise of the restaurant the words NSO from the other end of the table. And that's when I think, okay, definitely confirmed. This is exactly what we think it is. I wait patiently. It takes about two hours, but I wait patiently for John's signal. He sends me a text message that says, okay, now. And then I send a little text message to the photographer downstairs saying, keep your eyes peeled. Something's going to happen. And then I turn to my lunch companion and I say, all right, it's action time. So we both get up. John at this point distracts Michel by having him look at something out the window. You know, wow, look at that taxi or something to that effect. And I wander over to the guy. Meanwhile, uh, Jeff, the cameraman, has gotten the camera out, turned it on. And I sit down right next to him, pull up a chair. And I say, hi, Michel, it's really nice to meet you. Shake his hand and start asking him questions. And how does he react? In this gotcha moment, Badly. this is like this is like some some sixty minutes gotcha stuff right here. He's not happy. He <laughs> he seems to stiffen a little bit. He shakes my hand and then rapidly pulls away. He starts to kind of cover his face a bit, and finally, when he realizes what I'm doing and what I'm asking him, he says something to the effect of, "I don't need to talk to you." And I say, "Actually, Michel, I really think you're going to want to talk to me." And I get out my phone and I show him a photo that my AP colleague, Lori, in Paris has just taken of his office. And I say, we've had an AP reporter who just went to your office in Paris a few minutes ago, and she took this photo. And so what she did is she took a photo of his office with a piece of paper in front of it saying, hi, Michel. And, and I say, <laughs> this is some uh, trolling. Michel, well, I mean, we, we we wanted to be sure that he couldn't. I didn't want him to be in a position where he said, no, you have the wrong idea. I yeah. do have an office in Paris. I'm a legit person. I just wanted to prove, to spike the football, to really prove beyond any doubt that we had been there. We'd called him on it. He doesn't exist. There's nothing he can do. So he sees the photo that I show him. And he starts putting his stuff away. And he says, I know what I'm doing. It's a little bit of a cryptic remark. So I say, Michel, what do you mean you know what you're doing? And then he starts repeating himself. He says stuff to the effect of, I don't need to talk to you. Do you have permission to film here? Stop filming me. Leave me alone. And he he gets up to leave. He says ciao. And then that's when it just gets Mr. Beanie because he, he tries to leave the restaurant, but then the waiter 
or either the waiter tells him or he realizes that he needs to pay the bill. So he has to come back to us. <laughs> Meanwhile, the camera is still rolling, right? And I'm asking him, it's like, Michel, what's your real name? Michel, who do you work for? Michel, what do you think about the NSO group? And he's trying to spin around the room, avoiding the camera, avoiding me. Meanwhile, John is also recording him because John had a GoPro on him and he took the GoPro out when the confrontation started. So the guy's being filmed from two different angles. He's getting questions from me. He doesn't know where to put himself. And so he, it's like a slow motion chase around the restaurant as he goes around one table and then another table. And then eventually, finally, he sort of breaks off and goes into a little back room in the restaurant and complains to the staff and begs them for the bill. And at this point, we figure, okay, I think that that's about all we're going to get out of this. And so eventually we leave the restaurant. I mean, I think you put it best. At first, the way you're describing this, it's like a John le Carre novel. And then it ends with this Mr. Bean performance where you're kind of slow speed chasing him around. And it's just kind of pathetic. It was a little bit pathetic. And, you know, I showed somebody the video and she said, oh, I feel so sorry for the guy. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, you know, don't necessarily feel sorry for him. He's, uh, he's there on, on some sort of a mystery mission. And this is part of his work. And presumably this is the kind of thing that one can expect to happen when you do this, when you go into this line of work. But I, I must say it was, it was bizarre. And I didn't expect the confrontation to last this long. I really thought that we'd just be ushered from the restaurant within the, within a few seconds of taking the camera out. Instead, we were there for a good four or five minutes with this relatively weird situation of the guy trying to hide but not really trying to hide. And meanwhile, the other people, the ones that we clocked earlier in the restaurant, they are talking into their phones real fast and real hurriedly, walking up and down the stairs. Somebody somehow seems to pay the bill without any of us noticing Strange stuff is happening. So it is a little bit kind of high espionage and it is a little bit low comedy all at once. I mean, how bad can you feel for somebody or a group of people who have been hired probably for thousands of dollars, maybe millions, I don't know how much they get paid, but they're getting paid to essentially exploit a human rights watchdog. Look, it's, you know, we're journalists, right? We don't, we don't get paid to feel bad or not feel bad. About exactly. It is, it, it, it is what it is. I have to say that watching the video, it is hard not to feel a kind of twang of of pity for the guy or 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 at least cringe a little bit. On the other hand, you know this is this is the job. and and I think that John might say the same thing too. I mean, of course, it's it's outrageous to have academics and researchers targeted in such an underhanded way. I, I, I think that that's pretty unambiguous. But on the other hand, this is the kind of work that we get into. And, and I wouldn't complain if somebody at that restaurant had secretly taken footage of me. You know, I've been, I was participating in a sting operation. So, so this is what everybody signs up for. I mean, that being said, I think that there does need to be more attention to these kinds of things. And, and this happened on U.S. soil, right? So one does wonder if this is the kind of thing that, that, that needs uh, officials to look at. Because um, this is uh, this verges on 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 the kind of thing that you'd think like, well, I don't know, is this is this legal? I, I don't know the answer to that question, but but I'd I'd love for somebody to look into that. I mean, how do you feel from this story? I mean, having covered it, are you a little bit nervous that now you're going to be targeted? Because you have to you have to think. At least I'm thinking. You know, I'm, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I'm looking as an onlooker. 
And I know that there's a Saudi connection to the Citizen Lab report that goes into some of the suspicion around who was hired to spy on them. And, you know, you're a reporter that just, in very incredible terms, absolutely embarrassed, potentially. I mean, if he's not ex-Mossad, he's ex-intelligence, likely. I mean, these are these are enemies, as as pathetic Mr. Beanish as it was, these are enemies that I don't really want to have. Sure, but you, here in journalism, you want these kinds of enemies, right? And um, and as far as this guy is concerned, I think the New York Times recently identified him as uh, some form of former or retired Israeli security official. And uh, yeah, of course, it's a little bit nerve-wracking. I think I'd be, I'd be more concerned if I were John, but... Uh, but, you know, we do plan to dig into the story a bit more. Let's see where it leads. I, I, I'm not really intimidated so much as a little bit excited, but I won't hide the fact that, uh, yeah, it's a little bit nerve-wracking. And the night after the story ran, I you know, I made sure the door was well-locked and uh, uh, <laughs> double-checked my phone, make sure that I was, I was doing everything right. And uh, I'll certainly be looking around <laughs> A little bit more hard when, when you know, I kind of uh, go to a new meeting or when somebody emails me out of the blue and say, like, hey, Raf, I've got a great story for you. Uh, I think I might, might hesitate a little bit. Well, Raphael, thank you for being on the show with us. It's, it was an incredible story, and I'm just glad to have gotten to talk to you personally, to be honest with you, from a totally fanboy perspective. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. As, as a huge Motherboard fan, I'm uh, absolutely honored and uh, hope to talk to you guys again sometime soon. This week's episode was produced by Jason Kebler, recorded and edited by John Northcraft. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends about us. We'll be back with more next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.